Hi everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Laure. Uh, Laure's a physicist and an engineer, and she is, believes she's in Switzerland right now. And I saw a couple of her videos where she was talking about her PhD, um, the process to get her PhD, and it was kind of hellish. So I thought I'd have her on and we could talk about that and talk about whatever else. Hey Laure, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me, it's super nice. So yeah, your video is about your PhD. Um, cause I mean, I heard that and it's just, I, I mean, I watch those and it's like, I'm not in academia. I got out of, I got out of academia, you know, in the mid nineties. Um, and I've never, never looked back. So I, I don't know these things about like PhD and stuff like that. So if you want to walk people through the process, like you'd finish your master's or you're, I guess you're applying while you're doing your master's and then you start your PhD. So if you want to start with that and then we can go from there. Actually, not directly. So I end up in science a bit by luck because okay. I was a girl from a village and it's relatively conservative. <laughs> Switzerland is liberal, but quite socially conservative. And I ended up in physics, mm -hmm. which I absolutely loved. But I was like, okay, I want to get a real job and do something applied. But I finished my master when the economy was really low for Switzerland and nobody was hiring. And eventually I got a PhD at a really good university in Switzerland. And I figured if I cannot get a job right now, I'm going to do a PhD. So I arrived at the university and it sounded really good. So I was to do uh, avalanche triggering in granular media. Okay. And that sounded super, super interesting, but it was not my field and I had never really used the simulations. And my boss gave me a warm-up exercise and my entire PhD ended up being this warm-up exercise or this exercise that he gave me and I never did the initial topic of my PhD. Okay. It's often like that in science. He, you get funding for something and the boss does something completely different and there is no, not much checks. So that happens a lot. Okay, so I, I just, before I get into the PhD, because I just want to ask, okay, I'm a complete layperson. Uh, I'm going to make tons of mistakes. But when you said like you were studying, like you wanted to study like the avalanches. So when you mentioned the granular, so it's like how it starts, how it builds up. Because I was watching um, a video, I forget her name. She's a mathematician. I believe she's Dutch. And she was talking about mapping the flows of water and the currents along coastal areas. And like with the avalanche thing, would that be something similar? Like it's because, I mean, it, it builds up, right? It's not just one flake that comes down. It's something loosens at the bottom and that gives way then the whole top comes down right like is that kind of like like the flow in water or something like that like i like i, like I said I, maybe no, i'm not even asking the right not. question so if you you can do you just put rice on a plate and you bend like so you have a little stack yeah. and you bend it on the side and mm -hmm. you're gonna see it's like the layers on the top that are going to go down mm -hmm. and then eventually if you bend it more more and more layers are going to go down and the thing is there is there is the first grain. There is a grain that has to go first yeah. and start the avalanche. And this is a we don't we cannot predict exactly when it's going to start because maybe it's going to start a bit later or a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And we are studying this aspect of the physics, like when does it start to slide down? Okay, so like when it reaches critical mass, so to speak, type of thing, right? Like exactly, you're... exactly. Okay, cool. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off in your story about your PhD. Just yeah. No, no, it's uh, really cool. Uh, fluids are a bit different because fluids, you move little bits of water, mm -hmm. so like little volumes mm -hmm. of water. And you have, if they have space, uh, they will go slower. Mm -hmm. And then if you put all the water in a smaller tube, it has to go through faster. So the same volume can, can go through. Okay. So you don't have this same uh, kind of cutoff where suddenly it starts sliding. Okay. Um, so... So when you get into your PhD, now you've already done your master's in physics to some extent, right? Like you said, you... Yes. Okay. Now, when you get into your PhD, like, I, again, the process, I'm sure, like, what, you go speak to an advisor, you decide what you're going to do your thesis on, and then do they... No, in science, it's usually, the professor usually have a project. Okay. And then they write, like, a job advertisement. So the university will have job advertisement for open positions. And sometimes you can discuss what you want to do, but usually the direction is pretty set. The boss want to see X or Y or something like that. And then you get on board or not. 
Okay. It's not like in humanities. But okay, let's just say you were you'd done a master's in particle physics and you had come up with some idea and you wanted to explore that. You couldn't do a doctorate exploring your idea or your I mean if it's let's say string theory or calculations, like you would have to be limited to what what someone in the academy is telling you to do. Like you can't there is no free exploration at that point. That just seems counterintuitive to science. There is, there is. For example, if you meet the professor earlier, mm-hmm. you can write together a research proposal and hope that you get money to do your PhD on that. Okay. But that takes longer. So because I didn't have a plan before, I applied to something that was open. Oh yeah, no, no I, I'm just curious. Like it just seems to me that I understand. You know, P- universities have to publish. You're already a professor. You have to do. You want to do research. You got to publish all that. But if you want to. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to get my head around that. Like, if you want to start someone off on their career, like you said in the humanities, you know, someone will go do. A, they have an interest in certain aspect of English literature, and they go study that, and they write that. Whereas, like I said, if you're in physics or science or biology, and you have an idea for a new way of looking at something, and the math is going that way, and you want to spend some time studying it, so you have to work on someone else's project to get some credentials before you can work on yours. And in the meantime, someone else can take your idea, you know, independently, right. And run with it. Like, I mean, I, I'm just, I just, it's, it just yes. seems weird to me. Yes. and no. So the idea is that as a PhD, you are like a junior scientist. So you're like a baby professional. Mm-hmm. And even if you have great ideas, you will go into the lab of a great professor. Yeah. And then he will like teach you the academic ways. So that's why PhDs are paid like crap, because they work a ton, but mm-hmm. it's considered education into how to work as an academic. But if you have a great idea and if you can get funding, then you ne- simply need to find a professor who is okay to work with you. And that's not very difficult. If you are talented and you have a good idea, you will find someone who is an expert in what you need and try to see if you can go there. Okay. Like if you come with your money, usually you can come. It's fine. So it's basically follow the money. Yes. Okay. No, I, I mean, you know, but that just seems wrong to me. And I, I, I don't want to derail what happened to you, but that aspect of it right there, I get they have to do all that. And I guess, you know, there's limited resources. It's not like an English PhD or a history PhD where, you know, you're not you're not all fighting for the same supercomputer. You're not all fighting for the limited resources of the physics department. You know, uh, you're not all fighting for if there's lasers or something like you're, you're not fighting for that kind of stuff when you're doing a humanities degree, but there should leave some time like, okay, a company like 3M, they give their R and D team, I think take 20% of their time. They can work on whatever they want. You know, use the company resources, do whatever you want. Okay. And I realize as a you know student, I mean, even doing my master's, it's a lot of work. But if you set aside some time where that PhD student can then work on their own stuff kind of independently, like it's okay for the professors, for them to say, you have to learn the academic method. I get that. There's a methodology. There's a way to do things. You know, how you hand in papers, how you hand in your research, that all makes sense. But to try it independently, you would learn more than having someone over your shoulder telling you that this is not right, do it this way. Instead of letting you kind of figure it out for yourself, they're telling you exactly what it is. I mean, it, it... I mean, yes, but if you're, so I worked with an expert who is really an expert. Mm-hmm. And that's when he would say like, Lord, this is wrong. You know, he was right 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And so every time I had a feedback for him, from him, my research really improved. Because you have an expert's eye on your work, mm-hmm. and then you, they really push you forward. In the case of my boss, he was not good, so that was not helpful. Okay. But it's it's like academia is stuck in the 19th century. <laughs> like, no, it's really it's a completely patriarchal system where the, the professors have are god figures. Yeah. Like it's written in the contract that they are all the number of inferiors <laughs> whose entire career they hold in their hands. <laughs> No, it is because I, you get a professor position. No, and I, I believe that. Just... For a number of PhDs and postdocs. <laughs> and you can do whatever the hell you want with them because they are not, like, as long as you're a bit subtle, nobody is going to pursue you. And you can trash them into, like, 
you can trash their reputation if they're not good and then they're gone. Yeah, but I mean, see, that that to me is, like, I respect expertise. I'm not going to sit here and lecture you about physics just because I've read a Neil deGrasse Tyson book, right? Like, you know, like, I, I respect expertise. You've done something. But the Academy, in some ways, is making it, they're, they're taking something away from the expertise, right? If you're saying, okay, your professor is leading the research, but you got better feedback from the expert. I mean, if your professor is leading the, leading the research, he should have some expertise in that field. It, it shouldn't just be just because he's a professor and he wants to study it on a whim, so you have different kind of personalities in academia. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and no, no, but like of successful mm -hmm. scientist personalities. And one is the expert. So that expert I worked with, people come before they publish the papers, they come to him to make sure it's okay. So unlike if he co-authors a paper, it means that he agrees with it. So you're almost sure it's going to get published. Like once you gain a reputation as an expert, people mm -hmm. trust the papers you co-author. And then you have like my boss was, my boss was really good at selling ideas. So he would write fancy proposals and he would get a lot of money. So when you have an expert who likes to do research, he can collaborate with someone who likes to get money and then he can enjoy the, the access to these resources. And then you have kind of people who are very good at uh, putting money on experts in contact mm -hmm. and getting their name on papers in the middle time. Okay. So you see a lot of strategies going on in academia as well. That really, okay, it's politics. It's, it's, yes. you, have, you have three people together, you're going to get politics. It's going to happen. And maybe I'm being naive and idealistic, but that to me is not what the university should be. You know, it should be foremost about searching for an objective truth. It should be about advancing knowledge or something. It shouldn't be about the politics and who gets more money. And I, again, like, it's the real world, but it's, it's, it sucks. Um, I wanted to ask you about going through your degree. So do your bachelor's, your master's, and then you're coming into your PhD. I've spoken to one person about, you know, um, she does research and, you know, she's got a background in biology and stuff about women in STEM, but she was in the States. So, I mean, did you have a lot of, I know you talked about your village, but at the university itself, did you have a lot of pushback? Like, what was it like? being in STEM because I mean you hear horror stories and stuff and you don't know how much of it that is yeah, real. Yeah but honestly so I was at EPFL mm -hmm. it's a polytechnical school on the French side it's mm. it's growing uh, very fast and it's a very good school with a high level and I know my grandma tried to go there mm -hmm. when she was young for one year <laughs> like the professor would just lay, say like hello gentleman and all the professor would ignore the woman <laughs> And I have, a, I have a colleague who went there in electricity, like in the 90s. So she was the only woman. And she said people were pretty rude. And for me, all the professors enjoyed having a woman, except maybe one or, twi or two, mm -hmm. who were like, okay, one, one did mob one of the women a little bit, one of the female students. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if he, you know, maybe he did that to some of the guys too. Okay. So I don't know if it was just on us or if it was directed. But in general, I had a really good experience. Talk too much about discrimination in academia or at the workplace because I have limited experience on it. I was pretty lucky. I got mobbed on my PhD. It was a nightmare. But when it comes to the discrimination, it was fine. And actually, when it happens, it can be really hell for the women who have to leave it. I know several of them, and it really depends because you need to have abusers in the workplace and you have the need to have the administration that does nothing. And so it really depends on a case-by-case case and also on the law of the country. Okay. Like the students my age are quite... They were quite some sexist, you know, like the kind of stuff you have in the gamer communities. <laughs> you, you find out. But I really loved my time there. I did really hard science. Everybody was supportive of the institution. Mm -hmm. So it was, I really didn't have problems. Yeah. Okay. I started out my education in sciences. I was always, like in high school, I was in honors in science, did advanced placement courses. And then Quebec, the education system is, um, high school goes till grade 11 instead of grade 12, like everywhere else in North America. And then you have, to get your bachelor's, it's three years instead of four. And for those middle two years, they have a thing called CEGEP, which is a junior college. It's 
you have you go into a discipline, you have to take four courses in your discipline, then you have three courses, you can do whatever you want. You can take humanities, you can do anything you want. And I I went into pure and applied sciences. And I was I was thinking about going into medicine, but I wasn't sure because they have a health science stream and they have a pure and applied. But if you go into pure and applied, you can go into both. Um, so I went into the pure and applied. When I got the, like my first year of chemistry, when we were doing like, um, like redox equations, right? So when you're reducing the, the equation down, you're, yeah. okay. Okay. I to put one in front of me and now I couldn't do it, but I was following the way I'd learned in high school. Like he, they, he showed us a way and then, you know, I said, this is kind of in a worksheet to do this, bring it back, blah, blah, blah. So I did it the way I'd learned. I showed all my work, you know, like he was inverting a couple of steps, like the way he had taught us, it was just slightly different, but, and I got the right answer. And I mean, I would get back things like, if you do it like this on a test, I'll fail you because you have to do it the way I told you. And I'm like, well, that's not right. And I would get, keep getting things like that. So I just said, for me, it was just, I'm not claiming racism or anything like that, right? It was other people were complaining about, like, it it wasn't all the professors, it was some of them, and other people would complain about them. So it was just, I was just like, this is not what science, what it was taught to me as in high school, what, you know, what I read or like watching Carl Sagan or anything like that. So that PhD process kind of to me seems like that. It's limiting you very much. It's, it's, you know, you can only do it this way. And I understand like, okay, if you're making mistakes in your research or in your assumptions or your methodology is wrong, that's one thing. But you can only follow a PhD this way. That to me seems too restrictive. And maybe like again, I'm just being idealistic, and I don't know enough about the uh, academy to uh, say that. I don't know. No, it's true. I mean, is it, because there is a theory of PhD mm-hmm. where someone gives you money and you kind of come up with a great work on your own. Mm-hmm. But the reality of science is there is not that much stuff you can do like that. I mean, I, I did granular media, but you talked about particle physics. The theory is 50 years ahead of us. Yeah. So if you want to progress now in science, it's extremely difficult. So you need a team. And often you are going to be part of a larger project that yeah. someone designed on being like, okay, I need 15 people to reach that conclusion that makes this tiny stuff progress a tiny bit. And so you cannot work independently anymore. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I, I get that. Um, I actually did a, it was, it was, it was a little talk and I got interrupted by a baby, but I was talking about, um, uh, if you took hermits in the religious tradition and then hermits in science. And when I was saying hermits in science, I was talking, you know, using the example of Newton locking himself away, coming up with his laws of motion, Einstein sitting in the patent office and thinking of relativity. Yeah, if you look at CERN, if you look at the way science is going, you can't have that hermit anymore. You need a collaborative community, even someone who does string theory. Yes, they can sit in their office and work out calculations, but at one point or other, they have to test those calculations in a simulation somewhere. Like it's there's like it's not done in a vacuum. I realize that. I, again, like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to argue this because I think we're going to argue this to death. I, I it just for me, it just seems counterintuitive to me from the outside looking in. I get what you're saying. Like, if you want to work on a big project, like if you, if you did find something at CERN, you know, there's what ten thousand scientists there. You're going to be working on one small part of it and one small project. And you're going to be one one team that does something on it, part of that bigger thing. I get that. And you know. If you were, want to go into particle physics and you get a chance to work on a team to do your PhD at CERN, that's awesome. Like I said, I think there should be some time for you to play with your own ideas, not as part of research or anything. Like just let someone play with something. And if if something comes out of that, you know, you do your research, your PhD is on one thing, but if something comes out of that and it can be expanded upon or whatever, why not? Like why stifle that? So in... In theory, when because there are there are departments of science that do very well, mm-hmm. so where most of the professors are nice, where most of the scientists are nice, and so that go very well. And what happens is that people that's why people go to conferences. So you work on your stuff, and then when you go to conferences, you ha- you are with all experts in your field, who have no family, no sport, no obligation, no teaching, no administration in some city somewhere far away. Mm-hmm. No, but you seriously, you have five days where from the morning to the evening, you can go out for a beer, you can go out drinking. And that's when you get to discuss 
about life and science and complain or give your ideas. And EPFL has a saying that the bar, there is a bar mm-hmm. called sat- satellite at mm-hmm. EPFL, all the labs started there. Yeah. Because it's when you get into a beer and you start goofing around about ideas or you, you thought about something, you get to talk to it about someone else and you can build a collaboration or you decide to write a grant proposal. So this, this creativity happens because you can ask for money from a funding agency. But it can only ha- happen if you're not completely terrified of losing your job yeah. or having to produce at a very high rate. Because you need to be able to do like silly stuff. Yeah. Uh, about that, losing your job. So now you're a physicist. If you don't publish, like, like so, okay, I, I might pray this badly. Like, if you're doing research and your research in and of itself doesn't, is not coming to an end, but the spinoffs from that research are generating some form of revenue, like engineers in that university are taking that and coming up with devices and things like that. Just because you don't publish, you shouldn't get, like your research is creating something for the university of value, right? Like, is it always publish or die or like, how does that work? I mean, you can publish in small journals or you could be a quote or in someone else's research. So you start something, you leave, someone else finishes it and then mm-hmm. they write the paper and then you would be a quote or because you contributed. Okay. But that's typically the problem of technicians. Because the PhD comes and he's like, I need a crazy good picture of that thing. And the technician is like, okay, he spends two, day working, two days working on it. And then he doesn't have his name on the paper. When genuinely none of the research, like in my group, on, in a lot of science, nothing happens without the technicians. We completely disregard <laughs> them. But they're the guys who know whom to like open doors, take measurements, make sure it's working. Okay. Speaking of that, wasn't it? Like at the Mount Wilson, when the when they when like they when Hubble found the redshift, like wasn't it like he was there to kind of clean up or something after the fact, and he was doing it at night. Like I mean, obviously it had to be at night because he's looking at the stars. But like, I don't know if that story is apocryphal or if it's just it, it was someone who was there at night to like change some plates who noticed the redshift or something. Oh, like that's that. entirely possible. Yeah. yeah. I don't know the story in question, but that's entirely possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. When you, like, when you're, when you're, when you're done now, like, what are you, what are you hoping to do after you finish your, like, you've finished your degree, you finished all that. Like, are you working at the university? Or are you working somewhere else? Are you looking for, you know, research work or what, what kind of work do you want to do? No. So I got really lucky that, um, so my PhD was completely crazy, which I talk about in the videos. And then when I was preparing to defend my thesis, I was at my dad's because I was not paid anymore. Mm. I had no more access mm. to my lab. And I, I went around an ad for a job. And my dad said, okay, you have 80% of the skills, you know, I'll help you write mm. the letter. I applied and I got hired. And so I'm in a group, an engineer, system engineer. All my group is absolutely adorable. And... You know, and I'm the first woman in the group because it's a really an engineer job and everybody's super nice. So I got extremely lucky on that side. Okay, that's good. Because mm. I had no energy to apply to job or search for anything. And I pretty much, at least temporarily, burnt my bridges with academia. <laughs> and that, at least with that university. Let's say with that university. We will see because my professor is still working there. But they finished the investigation and I sent an email, but the rector said she would probably not give me any information. So we are like, okay, so you said you finished the investigation. Yeah, sorry. So what, like, if you want to get into that, because I know there's the videos, I'll leave the links at the bottom in the description. But if you want to give a brief summary of like what happened, why you started the investigation, because you finished your degree and all that now. But I mean, if you watch the videos, the guy did not make it easy for you. No. So his strategy was to push, to put as much pressure on me as possible. And he wanted me to prove something that I think is wrong, but he thinks is right. And every time I was reading research, I kind of agreed with myself and against him. So he increased pressure and he was really mobbing me. And eventually I broke down. I had to take like a sick leave to rest because I was so exhausted. It was really bad. And when I came back uh, from one month and a half sick leave, something like that, I got an email from the professor who said um, the thesis should be written right now. 
And I was like, I'm on sick leave. I had no time to write the document. Mm. And then he made me like scratch the last chapter on, mm. on starting new research. And that's when I realized I needed to speak with the university, but I like, go higher up because I had tried the in-between levels and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things. If people listen and there is mobbing and abuse, uh, it's actually very important to read in the rules who has the responsibility to do a mediation or to report abuse. Because you can go talk to other people, but they will just say, oh, I'm so sorry, and ignore you. So you need to really find who is hiding and not trying to help, or like harass that person. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. Yeah. Like, because no, you, you know, they don't answer emails, or they say I'm busy, and it's always like the person who knows they have the responsibility or don't want to do it, they're really good at hiding somewhere. So yeah, so I started... I went to someone, uh, the director of doctoral studies, who is a great man, amazing. And he said, well, you know, it's terrible, but if you want to build a case, we are not building it for you. Mm-hmm. You need to contact people in your group and bring the, bring the proofs to us. Okay. So I talked to people in my group, which is very safe to do. Totally recommend that. I gave a meeting in one of the shops. Uh, in the cafeteria of the shops because I, one of the shops because I assumed the professor would never go there it's too cheap <laughs> and half of my group showed up and I explained to them what I wanted to do and then some of them said they would, told me they wouldn't and eventually in the next few days I had a few people join me and say yeah we need to do something it's really bad okay. and as everybody started speaking out I was like I was really mistreated but I was by far not the only one there's a difference that I see between Europe and North America in the story you just told. Professors have been called up. Okay, I'll give one example that's really, really egregious. And this was from, I want to say maybe about eight, nine years ago, maybe a little bit more. But she was a professor at Harvard Law. She was teaching a course on uh, criminal sexuality. One, one of the classrooms, she was talking about rape. Now, it was dismissed, but a student complained to the university so she got called in for a whatever whatever hearing or anything, but I mean, it was dismissed right away because it's kind of ludicrous. That person bringing in that charge got the professor spoken to. Like, I don't know how severely, like, was it just an email or whatever, right? Whereas in your case, they said, okay, you know, this sounds serious. They took you seriously. They asked you to bring in evidence, which I think, you know, to some degree, like, I don't think you have to build the entire case, but if you bring in enough evidence or enough proof, then they should look into it. That's their, that is their job, right? You know, asking a student to go after their professor is kind of hard, <laughs> you know, but if you bring enough, you know, enough students, let's say half your group comes up and says, no, this is all true. This is what he's done. I don't know. When I came the first time I had, so on my side, I, he put me on very short contracts. Mm-hmm. Shorter and shorter and shorter contracts. I ended up on like, I had five contracts for the university in 2018. And then I had two unpaid months. And so I got the money one year later. Oh, God. And I signed like 10 or 11 contracts in the end. So when I came to to talk to the guy, I was like, he's my stack of contracts. And I'm on a two-month contract. This is completely crazy. And then I went on one-month contract. So, like, the, the, fi- the case was building itself up. And I had some other documented, like, written proofs of stuff that didn't concern me, but that were also really bad. Yeah. So I already had a pretty severe case. But what the university was doing is they always try to drop it under the carpet. So in my case, they would, like, kind of... So they would do a summary to the president, and they would remove half of the claims. And then they would do another meeting and they would drop another 20% and slowly and slowly the case gets lower and lower until mm-hmm. it stops. So it was really hard fighting against that the whole way. So, like I said, from from like what I see here, or at least in the US, is they just take everything the student says seriously, which I think they should, but they don't look at some frivolous claims. Like if I was an administrator and someone came in and said, well, they didn't give me a trigger warning in a course on criminal sexuality when they mentioned rape. And I was like, well, if you want to be a lawyer, and this is Harvard Law, yeah. and you're taking a course on criminal sexuality, you should expect to hear the word rape. I mean, and it has criminal and security. It's not going to be all night. Yeah. And- <laughs> so I, mean, I would have stopped it right there. But you know, if a student comes in and says, this teacher's harassing me and making fun of me every day because the other day I was uncomfortable with the term rape, 
that's a different story then, right? And then that's, that, okay, you can say, fine, yes, we'll look into that. That's, but in your case, it's going too far in the other direction. It's, you know, I understand their university wanted to protect their reputation, protect their professors. It makes sense. You know, like you, you should, like what's happening with no, Stephen. No, and P- I wanted, so the yeah. thing is, I wanted like due process. Yeah. We did not go in the media. We did not, you know, start really mm-hmm. ruining the thing. We wanted them to do the thing, which was extremely hard and painful to do. I think there is a difference because in your case, mm. or in the case you cite, it's a public execution. Yeah, I don't know. I, I get it's it. HR is like, oh my God, we got a flimsy accusation about something that, you know, like at worst, it would deserve a warning. Uh, if you forgot to put a trigger warning on criminal sexuality to say that criminal sexuality includes rape, you know, on his dictionary, <laughs> or like you give dictionaries to people at the start. Okay, but it deserves like a writing, a writing. Yeah. Or one of these written documents that, uh, you know, where your superior says, yeah. I am displeased by what yeah. you do. Yeah. You don't get fired. Yeah, don't, don't, don't get put on sabbatical. Oh, no, no. She, she didn't get fired, luckily. Like I said, it was dismissed because it seemed okay. kind of... But just being called up for something like that, it, sh- it should have never even gotten to the professor, I don't think. Like, I mean... I, uh, I would... I might... Add, so I might wait, but I would tell the professor... Yeah. But it might just be an email or just like a, a bilateral with, you know, with yeah. someone who just said, okay, because you don't know what the students might do more or if it was a start yeah. of something. Yeah. Like I would want to know if someone had started to try to ruin my life, you know? Yeah, I guess. But it's it's still, I don't know. It, to me, it just, there's got to be a happy medium somewhere. There can't be everything a student says you have to take, you know, just, bring in the professor and at the same time what happened to you where well you know i can see that saying okay we'll give you uh you know a one-year contract but you're for the first three months it's trial if that doesn't work out then we'll let you go after three months that that i can understand that makes sense right because maybe you you don't know what you're doing yeah yes but to make you go through a you know renewal of a contract every couple of months like how do you how, how do they expect you to do research so in my case, it was a way to keep me on leash. Because if I didn't produce and do exactly what the professor wanted, then he could fire me. But, and, but that's the thing. For example, PhDs, at least in science, mm-hmm. I mean, I, technically, I doc, I'm a doctor of science, but yeah, we don't really care about the names. But PhDs in science, you get like three years funding, and it's almost impossible to defend within those three years. Like, it's only possible if you actually started working on the PhD before. So, for example, if your master work or your master's mm-hmm. studies or master thesis was on that subject, then you, you are ready to get into it. And so they on purpose underpay people and then set them up to fail and to work after their contract, <laughs> which, is, which is completely on purpose everywhere. And science is not lacking money. I get that. Like science has a ton of money. It's kind of insane how much money has science compared to political science or oh. other fields, you know. Okay, this is just devil's advocate here. Are they, in some ways, okay, they make it hard on people so they learn how to deal with that kind of pressure? Like um, some of the tests and things, like, you know, um, so if you're going into your master's into medicine, you have to take, at least in North America, you have to take something called an MCAT. If you're going to law, you'll take an LSAT. And they purposely make those tests so stressful. They want to see how well you react under pressure in that short amount of time, as well as taking the test and making sure you, you know you get a good score. Now, is part of the PhD process introducing that kind of stress to you because you might get that, you know, in quote unquote real world? Like, is, is there some aspect of that as well, or is it you have you know some people who do it better than others, some people who don't apply any at all, or is it is there any kind of direction like that, like? I honestly don't think there is like a big plan to break young researchers, <laughs> something like that. Some some professors and some section and some department, absolutely, 100%. Mm. So you have universities, you have departments that just rerun to break people. Uh, totally. But in general, the problem with academia is that it's worldwide. Like the market mm. is worldwide. Yeah. I worked with Iranians, with Indians, with a Brazilian guy. I mean, really... The entire world. And so if your university is not performing well, people are going to go anywhere else in the world. So you have a huge competition to get the best talents 
to keep them to get papers because all the rankings is about papers and Nobel Prizes. Mm. And it's hard to get Nobel Prizes, so everything mm. is on papers. And so I think, so what I saw, for example, my, my university, they changed president mm. after I defended, and that's why I managed to graduate because the new guy is really good. Like the new president yeah. is, is really talented. But he was also saying they were not sure how they could solve all of the academia's problems. Which I think which I think actually for Switzerland you can. Because we work on our own funding and we are basically in a bubble. Mm -hmm. So we are one of the few countries in the world who could do that. But it's a huge task. It's breaking yeah. 150 years of academic tradition and rethinking it so you can perform well enough to train like really good students because mm -hmm. universities a lot of universities in europe and i guess in canada too the level is very very high like physics at epfl it really kicked my butt but i mean it should be right it shouldn't be at that level uh it should be hard like it it's it, it should be challenging it shouldn't be impossible but it like here like you'll see an attrition rate so let's say 10 people start a phd by the time it comes down to finish, I, I, I'm throwing out numbers here, but it's something like you know, only three out of that ten will finish. Because yes. the, you know, like, is that the same kind of thing in Europe or, or where you went, or is it, you know, if ten people start, seven will finish? Like, is there, do they keep more people or do they? No, in science, most people who drop out drop out quite early in the first year. Okay. And usually, if you reach the third year, or something like that, at least in science, you're going to finish. Okay, so, but I mean, in that first year, like when you say first year, are you talking about like first year of your PhD or like... Yeah, what? so maybe the first three, six, nine months. Okay, so... Which is like you find out you don't like the subject, you have another mm. opportunity, you hate your boss, anything, mm. and you leave. Yeah. So it's basically a failed job. It's not really a failed PhD in a sense. All right, so... Where, where I disagree is, for example, uh, we teach kids to swim, Yeah. right? But we could also just drop them in a pond and wait until they learn to swim. Yeah. Right. And then in the end, they both kind of manage, but one is way harder than, and traumatic than the other one. Mm -hmm. So there is no reason, if you're going to do something a bit difficult, there is no reason to add extra hardship onto it. No, I, on, I the contrary, and on the contrary, if you want to teach the best students mm -hmm. or the best people, you need to remove the things that don't matter so you can really get people to focus on what matters. So you need to evaluate what kind of output you want. And I agree that stress and independence and working with deadlines are absolutely necessary. But they also need to be handled like humanly, like how much capacity is a human capable to do and we are going to go at that limit. Yeah. And then we are going to see how we can make them learn the most possible within that limit. No, no, I, I get that. Like the, you shouldn't, you know, you hear about um, medical residents working 30 hours straight and stuff like that. Like, no, you shouldn't yes. do that. When, you know, that's one, that's not good for the patients. That's not good for the resident. It's not good for anyone, right? That's when you're going to make mistakes when you're tired like that. That's when things happen. But also at the same time, they're like, okay, what if you have to go into surgery for 20 hours? So we're preparing you for that. But, you know, fine. Then have residents work 20 hour shifts instead of like 30 or like, there, there is some mediums, right? Like, I agree with you there. Uh, yeah, you said you are gonna do that. Like, it's in the contract. You will do that. I don't know, once a month. Yeah. You know. So we, we, sh you, you experience it. You learn to deal yeah. with it. But we also give you maybe two days off yeah. later in the month, so you can recover. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I mean. You yeah. know, managing the hardship yeah. to get the best out of people. No, no. Obviously, you have to do things like that. But okay, you just mentioned you know you were speaking with people around the world. Like you mentioned Iran and India. And this is something that, you know, because I'm seeing this a lot. I work in IT. You know, I've set up communication systems and stuff. So, yeah. you know, I rely on science. But you hear that, you know, science is a white way of knowing. Um, there's a conference going on in New York right now. I don't, I don't want to say New York. It's a virtual conference. Removing white supremacy culture from schools. And some of the things they listed was objectivity and, you know, worship of the written word. Like, what, what I really, yeah, what I really like about this whole diversity thing, you get downvoted really fast when you say it on the internet. Is that if they want diverse scientists, they are just gonna get Indians, because there is over a billion Indians, and their schools are only progressing every year, and they are really learning to to train like competent software engineers and software developer and scientists. Like every year, the universities improve, and they already have really good ones. 
So they are, they are just pumping out brilliant people. Uh, but but to hear, no, but I mean, this is coming from like you know the, the the social justice side, whatever you want to call it. That this is a white way of doing things, and that you had that thing that the hashtag shut down STEM. Now it's like decolonized science. How could you think that? Like I, I I don't even know where to begin with that. It's it's so false. Like that science is a white person's thing. I mean, for Christ's sakes, we use Arabic numerals. I came out of India. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't tell them the Middle East made like most of the stuff we use in Europe. No, but, but you know what I mean? It's it's silly. Like, like, no, no, but we, we, we have a writing, religion, yeah. uh, math from the Middle Eastern parts. It's just... No, but I mean, there, there's a quote from Plato uh, and he's talking about mathematics in Egypt and he was saying little children in Egypt yeah. play mathematical games that you know grown men in in Greece can't, and he, he said, like, you know, men in Greece are like pigs compared, or I don't know if he said pigs or dogs, compared to, you know, you know little children in Egypt. And for, for someone to say that now, that it's, you know, like, like, that's what worries me when I, and then I see scientists saying it, um, you know, there's a conference in Johannesburg in 2016 that said science must fall. And it was the philosophy department against the science department, and they the year after that or the two years after that they had another at the, again at the university of johannesburg they had two two meetings over two days about decolonizing science and you know at one point someone in the philosophy department said why do we need this white western science we have our own science our shaman can call lightning down on people and being and scolding one of the science faculty for laughing at that i mean but so the one of the things I was thinking about some of the fields of humanities by far not all. Yeah, yeah, some. But if the field is bullshit, <laughs> you know, and it's not based on solid reasoning, the authors are kind of weird. Like for example, there is an entire field made up on Lacan, the French philosopher. Yeah. And the guy just liked showing up and said everything on its contrary, so you can study him for forever. Yeah. And so if you get into that. And then you say, okay, I'm going to stay in that field. You accept that you're going to speak a ton of nonsense and write nonsense nonstop. Yeah. So you kind of breed nonsense. And the healthy way, because I was wondering, you know, why, do, why are some small groups healthy and others not? Mm. A healthy group or a healthy person is someone, no matter how bad they are at the beginning, mm. when you see them two years later or five years later, they got really better. Yeah. So, for example, an association was really screaming on the street, but now they are organized, they know about the rules, they have a plan, they have a structure, you know, yeah, like they know yeah. what they are doing. And some of them, some others are still screaming on the street, the yeah. same crap. And you're like, okay, you didn't progress at all. And I think that's a problem in that of humanities, because then your paper is not worth that much. Like your, yeah. your skills, maybe you write well, so you mm -hmm. could get a job in that, but otherwise your entire field depends... Uh, on on kind of keeping the lie, you sit, you cite your colleagues, they uh, cite you, so you have citations, so you get more funding, okay. and it's kind of a self-serving loop where that, you are prisoner. That's the, okay, that's the expertise thing in the academy that's really worrisome, right? Uh, Brett Weinstein called it ideal laundering. So they can go back and say, oh look, see, it's in, it's in a published journal, it's it's in it's you know it's academic, right? Yes. So if you're working in physics and an English major comes up to you and says that's not the way to do physics. You're just going to tell them, like, you know, go to hell. You don't know how to, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an English major. I mean, like, but if someone comes in and says, I have a PhD in race studies and there's racism and you have to fix the racism in your department, they might defer to that because they're not talking about fixing physics. They're talking, they're talking about a problem of racism in the department. And it's like, well, this person has a PhD, you know, they value that PhD. They value that quote unquote expertise. But I don't think until recently even today, like to this day, with people being fired left, right, and center, that no one is looking at where this is coming from, from within the academy. Like people are starting to wake up and some people are starting to look, but it it went unchecked for a long time where, you know, someone with a gender studies PhD can be in the diversity office and say, well, no, here's the misogyny in your department and you have to have this diversity code put in. You know, and they'll look at a disparity and I'm not saying there isn't like, you know, like people say, oh, well, you're denying racism or sexism. I'm like, no, you know, I, I, I work in IT. I work with a lot of geeks. I know what assholes they can be, 
but you know uh but the disparity in and of itself is not racism or sexism or whatever right but that's that's where i think well you're getting it's in trouble. worth looking at the disparity to understand its reason oh no, for, so, for sure for example science is very is worldwide but there is almost no africans except from south africa some some engineers and that's because they just don't have enough good quality scientific universities but the way to to defeat that is not to do diversity hiring at university is to go to university and to be like guys now we are going to fund departments and chapters and like we are going to help african universities really raise their level yeah like they say there is not enough funding for research for malaria but in my opinion we need to train people We pick countries or regions that's stable enough, maybe multicultural enough, yeah. like close to an airport, and we train people there so they can do it themselves and really get world class on that. Yeah. So the solution that. you need to, yeah, each solution need to be looked at individually and it can be different in different countries and then to be like, okay, how can we solve it in a good way, like a helpful way? Yeah, no, that's, that's I mean, okay, that's again something similar to what I said about the education system here. Um, oh, there's not enough diversity in STEM fields, uh, you know, in university. And yes, there's, but then you see it rising as well. Like you've seen their numbers go up. So instead of fixing, you know, the feeder system, so the primary and the secondary education, which, okay, you know, this school has never had anyone go into a STEM field in 20 years. So what's wrong with that school? Oh, it must be racism. It's like, no. It's, they, they go in with, it must be this, let's find this, and we're going to fix this. It's not, where's the dis there's a disparity, why is the disparity there, let's find out the reason and fix that problem. It's like, the problem is X, let's go fix X. And it always seems to be like that. So if you don't fix that feeder system, you're always going to have that bottleneck at the universities. And you see it happening here a lot where they'll let in people, oh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll waive this qualification we'll get them to stem they're almost good enough but they're missing this one thing and then they can't cut it so then they drop out and they go into something else yeah that's, it, that's yeah, depressing then for yeah, them you know, like you failed you know, to me like what you're saying like okay let's build up the universities in africa so that they can do the research on malaria and while they're like you know just using malaria as an example like you did but instead of doing that it's like oh no we've got to get Medicine, Medicine Sans Frontières down there. We've got to get, you know, this down there. We've got to get, you know, Bill Gates has got to give a billion dollars to, you know, which I'm not criticizing Bill Gates for putting money into malaria research. I think it's awesome, right? But if part of that money was spent in updating a university, you know, take a university in Nigeria, it's doing fairly well and it's fairly stable. You know, we'll update that. We'll bring in, you know, top quality equipment. We'll bring in researchers and we'll train the people there. Yeah, and it's organizing the conferences uh, there. Yeah. So like the other researchers come and meet everybody. Yeah. And it's, it takes time to build expertise. And you cannot just like yeah, snap your fingers. elect people <laughs> professor. Like you need yeah. time to, to build it. But I think it's a very interesting in, like investment on the long term. Yeah. And then as soon as the university is good enough, it's going to be like, no, we have our own idea of what we do. And then they will go in their own direction. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's another thing too. We sh I don't think you should impose... Like a European style of university, and you know, I like the objectivity, I like the scientific method, I like all that. Like that methodology is okay, but the way you set up the Sorbonne might not necessarily be the way you set up a university in, you know, the Republic of Congo, right, or you know, sure. Tanzania. Like you have to, you know, there is a structure that you can follow, but it should be. Like I've seen a lot. I've done a lot of work with military and aid and stuff, and it was. They go in there and they tell the they tell the country this is what we're giving you this is what you need, and then you find out afterwards. Like, I worked in Haiti after the earthquake there as part of the Canadian government relief fund, and we built an office for the Ministry of Health, a temporary office. And they told like the Canadian government said you're doing this and you have to do this. We were hired by the Canadian government. We did what they told us to do. When it was all done, the Ministry of Health came up to us and said um, we can't use this because their servers and everything were still up and running. And then I, you know. I worked and I got our network hooked up to their network and I worked with their, because they didn't want what the Canadian government was doing. So 
it shouldn't be the same way with the universities. Like you need the Sorbonne. You need this exactly here the same way. We're going to teach you the exact same way. No, like there are cultural differences that you have to look at. Like I'm not, you know, so, you know, is there a, like you keep the methodology, you keep the, you know, you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, you observe it. Is it true? Yes or no? Like, you know, you keep all that, but not the, okay, you need a prefect. You need, you need this, you need that Dean, you need, you need this diversity office, get rid of all that other trash. Just keep the methodology and let them figure out the system that works the best for them around that methodology. Sure. But anyway, it's more about, that's a question of how do you execute? Yeah. Like a solution that's working. Yeah. No, no, but, but like I said, I, I think in some ways we are arrogant where we say, okay, this is the solution. It works for us. It's going to work for you. Give them a couple of different options because I mean, okay, I said Sorbonne, let's take Oxford. Oxford and Sorbonne don't work in the exact same way, right? They'll work similar ways when they're sharing research or, you know, how you do your doctorate or whatever. You have to have some sort of standard. But the way they operate as universities are two different things. So if you give them those two choices and say, this is this one, this is that one, you know, they can maybe mix the two together. But I, I find that when there's aid given, when there's stuff given, it goes in and it's like, this is what you're going to have to do. This is what works. And you're going to have to fit everything you have around that. And I think that's the wrong way to go about that. It was a program against hunger. I saw a presentation of its uh, director a few years ago. And they had this exact problem. So it's a program where countries uh, give it money. Mm-hmm. And it's here to deliver food when there is a catastrophe. So if there is a tsunami or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what they found out is that when they bring the money... Sometimes they also destroy the local agricultural economy because they bring all the food and then the food prices drop and then all of the agriculture go, go bankrupt or they cannot send the kids to school yeah, and everything exactly. like that. And she was saying, yes, they had to completely rethink the way they approach the help. How do you distribute it? How do you make sure you don't break the economy? And then because this program, it's an amazing program and it's getting cut, it's funding every year, mm-hmm. has less and less. They say now they need to choose who gets food. See, that's, that's the problem. And so they had, yeah, so they have programs, for example, they go in South America, they had a program where they were helping people learn how to harvest food. Mm-hmm. And then the food they were bringing, they could only feed the kids. And it, they said it's really hard because it pushes the kids to go to school, which is great. Okay. But then the kids feel guilty because they get to eat and then they go home and their parents have almost nothing. Yeah. And yeah. she was saying it's so hard when you really try to tackle an issue to do it well. Even yeah. if you have the resources, it was, yeah, it was a difficult yeah. job. Okay, same thing. Haiti, right after the earthquake, yeah. all these charities and, you know, even companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi just sent water. And I mean, this is, I'm not saying anything against it. They were charitable, but they sent so much water that some Haitian water bottling companies almost shut down for the same reason, because people were getting water for free. And so you're, okay, yes, there's an earthquake, there's resources missing, Everyone's out. Oh, we got to do this. They need water. Okay. We, or, or like at the start of COVID, everyone's you know buying out toilet paper because why you need that much toilet paper? I don't know. But it was just this one thing that goes in your head. So you send it. Yeah. So I see that a lot. And I mean, you know, obviously you know, we can't, I don't want to sit here too long talking about what we should do for, for aid, but there's a really good book called Dead Aid. And it talks about aid going to Africa and how the monetary aid is actually more of a problem than you know not getting it because it's improperly used a lot of the countries can't even make, meet their interest payments now um I'm trying to remember when it came out i read it in 2010 or 2011 um so it's a pretty good book about that like um and i, I believe the woman who wrote it she was from i'm gonna get this wrong but i think she was from nigeria or kenya and she you know, studied in the US or Europe and then she went back and she was looking at aid in, in Africa and it's you see that a lot like I've seen it in India I've seen it in a lot of places where they mean well but they do the wrong thing because they think they think they know what what people need like I said yeah the the church I was a part of when growing up mm-hmm. they had a we, one of the pastor uh, was really sensitive to that kind of stuff and so all the money that was donated was donated uh, to small orphanages but like where, where they knew someone who could check that the kids were really orphans, well taken mm-hmm. care of or not not mm-hmm. in these schemes. And then it was mostly to help renovate stuff. Because 
the idea was like, okay, if we can simply re- help renovate the hospital that's already been used, we, we are sure we are not going to break something useful, you know? Or it was like uh, in adding a couple rooms for like the, the new mom section. Okay. So they could like host more people. And one of the projects I helped with, helped finding funding and I went to Togo with, was for building an incinerator. Because the hospital we went to, they were burying all their waste. Yeah. And so the medical waste. And so the idea was helping them have the materials and uh, buy the materials to have a proper incinerator where they can burn their stuff. Okay. See, again, like things so like the that. Idea is, yeah, to make it small enough and then you really go and help one tiny aspect and the incinerator, it's a hole in the ground mm-hmm. with stone on the side, right? And yeah. asphalt. So they can totally handle it themselves. Uh, but, okay, like that's something they needed. That's something that, you know, you're helping them. And then exactly, that can help. Very... Yeah, but it's it's very targeted. But then you have, I've seen the other side of like aid and things like that. So I work with the Canadian military in Afghanistan, and on the Canadian base, they dug a well. They had their own water bottling plant, and then when the water was tested, because otherwise the water was being flown in from Dubai. So when the water was finally tested, it was something. I think it was like ninety-seven percent purer than most of the bottled water you could buy in Europe or North America. It was. It was, you know, like, and the, for the militaries, it was a lot cheaper to get it from the Canadians than to fly it over from Dubai. So Canada was supplying it to all the militaries uh, in and around Kabul. They were using local Afghanis to work it, and they trained them. They, they, they got it all running. Due to some legalities or whatever, they mothballed it. When the Canadians left, that got shut down. Instead of leaving it running, you already had locals trained on it. They could run it. They knew what was yeah. going on. So you had the local expertise. It's and it's it'll provide water for the city. I, I don't know what's happened to it now, but I know when the Canadians left, they mothballed it, and then I believe the French had taken over the base a couple of years later, so maybe they started up again. But it was just I'm like, how much money did you spend on that? And it's you know that's something that the community could have used. Like you could have given it to the community, they bottle the water, they sell it to the militaries now, they sell it to you know other other cities. It's an economy for the. But no, so it's the other side of it, the safety side. Oh, we can't do this because if something happens, then we're in problems. Um, in Haiti, it happened with the UN. There was infection of cholera in Haiti, like uh, it started spreading and it came from UN workers from Nepal and they caused the spread of cholera in Haiti. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because they traveled across the world. Yeah. yeah. So it's you know, like there is a lot of unintended and it's, you know, I'm not trying to say don't help charity organizations. I'm not, but there's a lot of screw up on the on the on the execution of it there's a lot of mess you know screw ups on it but on the other hand like companies also screw up a lot oh, like every, every association every society does a lot of crap so i'm not sure the charity on does it more than others i mean there is this whole corporate organization that's about funneling money on yeah. we are not sure what it does but on smaller uh, association charities with like a specific goals, it can be really great. Oh, yeah, I know that there's there's things like the the Kiva loans, they're, they're the micro loans, right? So a woman in um, a small oh, yeah, that community. was a Nobel Prize. Yeah, no? I don't know if I don't know, but I, I maybe I don't know, but yeah. So if a woman needs like a sewing machine, they'll give her five hundred dollars. She can buy the sewing machine. She starts a little mm-hmm. business, and those are amazing things. I'm not saying like that doesn't work because that is the person comes up to you says I need this amount of money to do this. This is what I'm going to do, right? And that's specific and it's targeted, but it's when it's these large global things and it is these large organizations, then you get the bureaucracy in it. Then you get, and I find a lot of time with these large things when they're doing the large ones, they don't speak to people on the ground as much as they should. They just go in like, yo, I'm an expert. I know what you need. I'm going to come in. It's like, no, the people on the ground know better. Some of the things they need, like, you know, they might need food and they're saying, okay, we want you to get, give us a tractor, but what they might actually need is better irrigation system, right? That's different, but it's still going to help them get food. Yeah, That's... they did uh, my university. <laughs> they did, I found uh, they had their first ever diversity equality thingy <laughs> meeting. And I was like, ooh, and I looked on the website and then I looked at the summary of what happened. And they wanted to talk about racism, sexism, and everything. And actually, all the foreigners wanted to talk about visa problems <laughs> with the government. 
And like, uh, how do you get a visa to get your, you know, your wife or your husband to come and the kids? And can you get like the family, whatever, the step family, the extended step family and everything? And all the women wanted to talk about childcare. And in Switzerland, they are slowly setting up um, extended deadlines. So if you're a woman in science and you have a baby, mm-hmm. a lot of the deadlines get pushed one year. Or you can ask for a grant and then you get six more months or three more months funding. To kind of try to help women not drop out. Yeah. Okay. And one of the issues the university had was that daycare was not very well managed. So you do something about sexism in academia, and all the scientists come and are like, daycare, daycare, daycare. <laughs> and like you said, you know, they, we we know what is the main issue, what's causing 90% of the problem now. Yeah. It's managing family life. And for foreigners, it's managing visas and understanding the local customs and why are all the documents in German and what's recycling. How do you recycle? And you get mm-hmm. fined for weird stuff. And yeah. you know, but <laughs> but then they'll spend their time looking for sexism or racism when the problem is you know a bureaucratic problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, in the case of women extending the deadlines, like that makes sense, and I think that should go for all single parents, right? If you're a single parent whether you're a man or a woman. Yeah, it's usually most of the stuff, not all, are like uh, not sex-specific. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that makes sense. Like something like that. You know, you want the law to be universal. So, yeah. Like for example, if you say abortion rights, you're not going to say like women are allowed to abort. You're going to say you are, if you're pregnant, you're allowed to abort yeah. up to 12 weeks okay. or something. But it's then, I mean, then you see the uh, other side of it. Uh, I think it was Australia a couple of universities said they were going to lower the admission standards for women for engineering to help get women into STEM. That's really weird. Yeah. And because like, women are better than, like, girls are better than boys in math. Like, as it, like the curves are just, like, completely overlapping. But No, but that's what they so, said. Or right after, black, you, know, the, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter protest now, a couple of universities, and I think it was even Oxford, that if any student said that this had traumatized them, they would mark them more leniently on their final exams. I don't think that that's a way to go about giving leniency. I, again, in the university in UK, the way they worded it was kind of for everyone, but the way they kind of pushed it was for women. They were going to give them an extra 15 minutes to finish. I mean, that that to me is sexism. That's pure sexism. That's like, oh, you poor little girl, you need well, some extra time. It's stupidity. Yeah. No, but, but I mean, if you that's not a way to fight sexism by saying... No, women- but there is a thing that raises a question about women in science is that, for example, a lot of countries in South America, yeah. you have almost the same number as, of women as men yeah. in science. Because if the girl is smart, the family goes, okay, you go in science, there is good money, yeah. right? And if the boy is smart, it's say, you go in science. So they don't have the belief that women are more nurturing and they cannot handle math yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But... Me, because I wonder, I was like, why am I one of the few women in physics? Because literally, you get the paper to register to university or like to the polytechnical mm-hmm. school, and in Switzerland, there is no entrance exam. I graduated with Latin. <laughs> okay? And then I could enter any university I wanted, any polytechnical school, uh, just like that. Choose my department, mm-hmm. enter, it was done. So it's just, you get the sheet of paper and you make a little cross where you want to go so there is zero barrier of entry for women mm-hmm. into science in switzerland except for your beliefs and the beliefs of your community mm-hmm. and when i was talking about science i had a lot of people say oh but you also have an artistic side why not do you know don't yeah. you want to explore it what if you went into journalism or literature why would you waste this artistic talent you have in science and i actually got a lot of kind of messages around me that yes sure you can go in physics but why would you do that that's and the pressure is kind of the strongest when you choose you know so like when you that's why like eight and ten years old girls we can say oh yes you can be a scientist when you grow up because they they don't choose at all at that moment they're just playing on in common school and so i feel like the pressure increases at the moment when you have the decision point and then once it's too late you can you don't need to apply pressure anymore like when they're saying, okay, why don't you go into, you know, you have a good artistic side. But science to me seems to be about creativity as well. Like you can't just be a pure technician. I, look, I, I respect the logic and all that, but to think up some of those ideas, you need to, I mean, you need to be able to come up with a creative solution for things. Like you need to have, 
I think you need to have an appreciation for creativity and art to do well in science. Like you need the rigor, you need the discipline, you need that structure, but just being rigid like that, I don't think you can, you know, you go where the math leads you, then you might not be able to think of something beyond just the math. Right. Sure. But if you do literature, you might write a great novel that a lot of people will enjoy. Oh, if sure. you do great research, you will have improved your tiny corner of science on written a really obscure papers that you, even you don't want to read because it's very annoying how you wrote it. Okay, but so yes, yeah, sure, there is creativity, but it's kind of like the. I mean, I think it it waves into the fact that a lot of boys are kind of sing, get a single interest mm -hmm. quite clearly, and like statistically, uh, boys are more likely to be a bit single mind minded, so interested in one thing, and girls, especially teenagers, are more likely to be generally good in different areas. Yeah. And not really, because I didn't, I was not very good at math at school. It was one of my best grades, but I also had a really good grade in Latin and in history. And I learned English with Harry Potter, so I also had really great grade in English. And my German was pretty decent, so I was generally a good student. So it didn't pop out, especially that it was the best in science. And I think that's maybe where there is a bit of like a cultural shift to be done. But there's yeah. not that much sexism. Like the, there is sexism at the university, but it needs to be worked out from within, yeah. because it's kind of like the five percent left over. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like the, you know, the people who say there is no sexism or there is no racism—that's wrong. But to say that it's the system, systematic or systemic thing that comes down from top that's crushing, you know, all women, all people of color. I mean, you know, I've done pretty well for myself. I'm a brown guy. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Canada. Like, no, but, you know, like, it's, and I'm, again, I'm not saying I've never experienced racism. Yes, I have. But, you know, it's not like it's the defining thing for me and it's not what's held me back. I, I just find that uh, a little too much. Look, I don't want to keep you too, too long. Um, if you've got you know, you want, anything else you want to say, like what you're planning are, where people can find you, your channel, anything like that. Sure. Well, if there is something I want your, I would like to convince your listeners of, we did not discuss it too much, but is that if you have a problem at your workplace, at your university, you really need to go and read the rules. Like, don't just have someone explain you how the process is. Like, go and find the PDF on the website and go through it to know what it is. Because if you do a process, a procedure and you don't follow the rule, mm -hmm. then the university can hide behind the fact that you did not go according the, to the rule and screw you over. And that's a thing that I learned kind of the hard way. And so I really recommend always just, you know, know your rights, read the rules. Yes, it's boring, but sometimes it has really great solution because maybe someone 20 years ago thought about the problem and wrote a strategy into the rules. Yeah. Um, I think sense. it's worth exploring. Well, no, that that makes sense. Like I, I used to joke around. I'm like, know the rules, because that way you know which ones you can bend and which ones you can break. Yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Anyways, if you want to let people know where they can find you, uh, where they yes. So I'm on Twitter and I have a YouTube channel uh, with the username Codelor, C O D E L A U R E, and I answer to comments. I'm very nice, and I have the little French accent all the time. So yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and thank I'll you so much for having me. No, no, thank you very much I'm for really coming happy on. I'm on your yeah. podcast. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for reaching out. And thank you everyone for listening.